verses 1 through 6 that tells us about our coming king. Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. In Matthew's gospel, this is the passage that the, they point to when Herod assembles the wise men and says, I got to know, where is this king this Jesus, the Christ to be born. And they say to him, well, the prophet said, but you, Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will come forth a ruler to shepherd his people. And that's the passage that we know. This is the word of God. Let's pray together that God's word and his spirit might go forth this morning. Well, Father, as we um, consider our desire for love and to be people who love well, we recognize that what keeps us from putting others first, what keeps us selfish, which, what keeps us uh, from experiencing peace is often desires that have run amok, that are headed off in a number of different directions. Our desires are disordered and disjointed and misaligned from the character and the, the will of God. And so what could put us back together again? Well, Father, your word tells us that the word of God is living and active and that it is sharper than any double-edged sword, that it actually can look at the nuances of our heart, that it can judge and perceive our thoughts and intentions and that it can get into the joints and marrow of our soul. So that's our prayer this morning is that your word and your spirit would go forth because only you are big enough to do the job of putting our lives back together again. So God, would you meet with your people this morning and would your word be strong and would your spirit be present? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I know the Advent candle that we lit today is love, but actually the passage that we're looking at has a lot to do with peace. And so you'll see in your bulletin, it says, the king who brings peace. I picked up this uh, puzzle yesterday while I was out. One thing that we love to do as a family over the holidays, maybe you guys like to do this too, 
is put together a puzzle. So we'll just lay it out on the table and kind of leisurely come back to it at different points throughout the week. And, you know, hopefully over the course of the week, we get to put together the whole puzzle as a family. And there's just something great, you know, about putting that last piece in. And so sometimes one of our kids or me will steal the last piece and hide it in our pocket till right there at the very end. Such a good feeling to complete the puzzle. So this puzzle on the front of it is actually kind of a picture of peace, isn't it? You have, a, uh, you have this serene log cabin on the lake. Uh, at dusk, there is a little fire on the beach and a hot cup of something and a blanket. And when I look at this, I think, gosh, if I could just be there, oh man, if I could just be there, that would be, that'd be so peaceful, right? Now, this puzzle has about a thousand pieces in it. It's uh, filled up to the brim, you can see in there. And what would be terrible is if I lost just a couple pieces, you know, before we got to start putting this together again. But I was thinking about, what if I did something crazy right now? You know what I'm saying? What if I just took this and just threw it in the air? I mean, I was really tempted to do this, but then I thought of Tina Hine. <laughs> and I, I, I saw her shaking her head, no, no, please don't. And uh, so I thought better of it, and I, uh, I decided to keep all the, the pieces in the box. But just imagine for a minute that I had done that and that pieces were all over the sanctuary and then I just thrown them everywhere. What would the likelihood be that somehow our family would be able to assemble that mess and complete the puzzle by the end of this week? You'd say, this week there will be pieces in the piano for 10 years. We will find them in the air vents for as long as this building exists. Like if you make a mess that big, you can't just expect it to be really easy to clean it back up. Well, so we're in, we're in uh, the season called Advent. And in this season of Advent, we're looking at the prophets and what the prophets have to say. And one of the reasons it's entirely appropriate to look at what the prophets have to say to us at Advent is because a bulk of what they spoke about, a bulk of what they wrote about was the coming of a Messiah, the coming of a deliverer, of a savior, who would enter into a broken world, a world whose pieces had been strewn about, and he would do something about it. He would begin to put things back together again. And the word that we have in our passage today is peace. It says that we will dwell with him and he will be our peace. Now, in the Hebrew, the word for peace is shalom. It's a really beautiful word, but it's probably a lot fuller and more complete than the type of word that we think of when we think of peace. We think of the puzzle. We think of uh, sitting by a lake or on a boat where it's serene and quiet. Um, but actually, the Bible's picture of shalom is much bigger than that. It's a word that means to restore, to make whole, to make complete again. If you could imagine a world where there was no more anger, no more hostility, no more racism, no more injustice, no more oppression, no more fear, anxiety, hatred, sickness, disease, or shame, none at all. Well, that's the world of shalom. 
Can you imagine a world like that? It seems like it would almost be a dream. But what the prophets are writing about is there will come a king who will one day put it all back together again, that he will reweave what's been unwoven, and that everything that's sad will suddenly come untrue. And that's what Mike is writing about for us today. Now, again, for some of us, when we think about peace, we have such a small vision. And so what I want to do for just a minute is show a video clip that helps us understand this word shalom. And biblically, what the concept is behind this word of peace in the Old Testament. So turn your attention to the screen for just a minute. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting, it also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom, and his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, my peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven and on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. 
So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. Okay, so maybe what we see here is that God's vision for peace is a little bit bigger, a little bit more comprehensive than, I just need some peace and quiet. Kids, get out of here. Like God's vision is to complete us, to bring about a wholeness in our lives, in our relationships, in our broken world. I love when he says that peace is not just enemies stopping the war, but it's when enemies begin to work together for one another's benefit. That's a bigger picture where he says it's not just the absence of conflict, but it's taking something complex that's broken and restoring it to wholeness. So here's the question this morning. Where are you longing for peace? Not just for things to be quiet and relaxed, but where in your life are you longing for wholeness and completeness, for things to be put back together, rewoven in your heart to its original design? How does God bring us that peace? That's what I want us to think about this morning as we dive into our passage. And I want to suggest that our passage gives us a map and that what it shows us is that peace does not come through an experience or some philosophy or by a reordering of our circumstances. If, if we could just get our circumstances together in our life, if they would be different. No, God says in our passage that peace comes through a person namely a king. And so the three headings are the king that we've always wanted, the king that we've never expected, and the king the world will never forget. So let's look first at the peace that comes through the king that we've always wanted. Now here's the context in verse 1. Just prior to Micah's coming on the scene, the Assyrian Empire is the new superpower in the Near East. They've risen up, they've come to power, And they have divided Israel into two kingdoms, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. And during Micah's lifetime, Assyria, this new superpower, comes in and lays siege to Israel. They surround Jerusalem. So in verse 1, it says, now muster your troops, for siege is laid against us. Now, a siege warfare is sort of a different type of war campaign than like shock and awe. A siege is where an army comes and totally surrounds a nation or a city. And they sort of hem you in and they block off your ability to trade or to send anybody in and out. And so essentially, they cut off your your supplies, your trade routes. They slowly and strategically attack points of strength for you. Uh, It's a sort of slow bleed type conquest over a nation where you can't get out and nobody can get in. And so slowly as the walls begin to close in around Jerusalem, hope is fading fast and they know they are about to be overrun by the greatest superpower in the world. Siege is laid against the land. Now I want you to think about your own life. Are there ever times where you feel like circumstantially in life, maybe a relationship a responsibility, maybe, maybe in your parenting, where it just feels like there is no peace. 
it feels like the walls are closing in around you and that you feel surrounded and there is not hope to be found or help on the other side. And also notice in verse 1 why they're in this position. It says, with a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. That's the king. Now, if someone is close enough to strike you, if someone strikes you on the cheek, it means they're close enough to reach out and hit you. It means that they're very close. And it also means that you're vulnerable. The face is not only the most sensitive and vulnerable part of your body, but it's also a sign of humiliation and insult. If I punch you in the arm or kick you in the leg, you know, that might hurt. But if I reach out and slap you in the face, there's part of me that is mocking who you are and your identity. It's deeper than just a, a body blow. This is a punch to the face. And so for Jerusalem, the capital city, this is the crown jewel of Israel. This is this is their, their pride. This is the seat of power. For them to be rendered powerless and for the king to be struck on the face, utterly humiliated. Well, what this is telling us is that this is a low point, now, literally a slap in the face for the whole nation. Now, why? Why are they in this position of humiliation and shame? Well, what it shows us is it's because they had no leadership. In the video that we watched, it said the kings were meant to bring shalom, but rarely they executed that. Rarely they pulled that off because they were selfish. They exploited their power. They oppressed the people, and they used everything for personal gain. And so what Israel needed most was a king. In order to restore shalom, there was a king that they desperately longed for. There was a TV show about... 10 years, ago, or 10 years ago or so on CBS, and it, it only lasted one season because it was super controversial. And the name of the show was called Kid Nation. Here's the premise of the show. Let's get 40 eight-year-old to 15-year-old kids and put them in a New Mexico ghost town without any adult supervision. They will have nobody with them for 40 days. And let's watch and see what happens. Let's see if they can work together and build a harmonious society and, and work and click together. Well, it was a dumpster fire. Uh, you would imagine uh, how this would turn out. I don't know why they ever thought. So there was plenty of critics. There was a ton of problems. And there was an article that Variety Magazine wrote. And uh, in this article, listen to what Listen to what this author says. Throughout the course of the 40 days spent in Bonanza City, four children drank bleach. One burned their face with hot grease. By episode three, all the rules had gone out the window and children rioted and looted the town store for fistfuls of candy, boxes of soda. They stayed up all night binging themselves into a sugar coma. When one of the older boy, fi boys finally realizes, hey, uh, we probably should eat something healthy, get some protein. He decides to gather around the other kids, and these 8 to 15-year-olds watch this boy with braces catch and chop off the head of two live chickens on national TV. Now, thankfully, CBS ran a disclaimer. The following scene may be too intense for young children. <laughs> 
ironically commenting on the viewers, their concern for the viewers, but not for the actual participants of the show. The intention of the show, as the producers and host constantly boasted, and listen to this, this is what we hoped would happen. For kids to succeed where adults have failed. That was the, that's what they thought would happen, you know? Well, what critics understood when they were writing about this is something that we really see throughout the Bible, that without leadership, without somebody giving us good and wise direction, listen, if you have children, or if you know someone with children, or if you've ever been a child, okay, you will know that if you allow children to have their own way whenever they want, with no accountability, with no boundaries, with no oversight, very quickly you will have chaos and anarchy and unrestrained selfishness and hostility. We need leadership. Not just the kids, because as this commentator pointed out, the adults have failed as well. And so there's a longing that we have for leadership and a king. But you know what's true is the prevalent sort of narrative of our culture and our, the spirit of the age is to question authority. That wisdom is actually being skeptical all the time, not submitting to authority. The cultural narrative would say, we don't really need organizing principles to build our lives around. We don't need God's word. We don't need community. We don't need church. We didn't need these things. We've got all that we need right here. And actually the reality is that this is the spirit of Micah's age as well. And as that nation experienced a lack of leadership, the wheels came off the bus. And it wasn't very long before they were hemmed in and there was disaster and judgment looming everywhere. They were humiliated on every side. And so listen, we know this to be true, that on our own, when we rule our lives, when we determine for ourselves what's right and wrong, what's appropriate for governing our lives, when we try to live this autonomous experience where we'd say, you know, I, I don't just really, I really don't need a group. You know, that stuff like coming on every, that's kind of legalistic to, you know, and to be a part of a church and to, and, and to sit under the teaching of God's word and to be, I mean, we don't really need that. I have everything that I need right here to be a fully functioning, capable human being in a thriving world. No, it's a total lie. And we understand that to be true. But there's part of us that would say, there's this tension in our hearts where we would say, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. Don't tell me what to do. And yet, in the places of our weakness, when we feel broken and helpless in our parenting, in our marriages, where there's sickness, where we don't know how to handle conflict, there's also this cry in the heart that says, I need help. I need somebody to help me. I don't want any help on the one hand. Don't tell me what to do. And then, God, please tell me. Somebody tell me what to do. And so our understanding and our experience of that tension is pointing to something deep within us that's longing for true leadership, good authority, a good king. I think that's why all the good stories resonate with this theme, the king that we've always wanted. In the Lord of the Rings, what do we want? We want the king to come back, to return and restore order and peace to a diverse Middle Earth. 
There's this new movie coming out tomorrow, or it just came out, The Rise of Skywalker. You know what we need? We just need a Skywalker, someone who will come and be the hero and restore order to the galaxy and balance to the force. We're always looking for the hero who will come through and deliver for us. Where would we find a hero like that? Where would we find the king that we've always wanted? Well, we get a hint in verse 2 of our passage. It says in verse 2, From you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Now, what's fascinating about that phrase there, ancient days, is actually that when we see that biblically, there's two ways that it's used. Ancient days. It points to someone that would come from an eternal time, from a time before time. When the Bible uses this phrase like this, it's pointing to something from all of eternity, from the days before days. But it also is used in such a way to talk about somebody from the distant past that is also connected to actual recorded history, meaning you could track their bloodlines. So in this passage, how is this phrase being used? Are we looking for a king, namely God, whose origins are of eternal nature from the day before days? Or are we looking for a king whose bloodlines we can track, who is actually a part of recorded history? And of course, we know that the answer is yes. It's both. That in the person of Jesus, we have the one who comes from all of eternity, but also comes from David. Now, number two says, this is the king that we've never expected. And so what we're looking at in verse two, it says, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one who is to be ruler in Israel. In contrast, so this is where the king is coming from, from the lineage of David, from Bethlehem. That's where David was from. And what he's doing here is contrasting Bethlehem to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is grand. It's formidable. It's the the seat of power. It's the place everybody knew, the national pride. Bethlehem was small. It was backwoods, virtually insignificant in Israel. Most cartographers in the Old Testament, whenever they listed out the geographical boundaries for Israel, whenever they talked about and they listed all these troops reporting to battle, They never mention Bethlehem. They just totally get forgotten. It's so small and so weak and forgettable. Bethlehem doesn't even get mentioned. And unlike other kings who hail from seats of power and prestige, who end up uh, at Ivy League schools, who are groomed and bred and royalty, not this Messiah. This Messiah doesn't come from D.C. or New York. He comes from Roopville. This is the Messiah from Roopville. You would never expect this king to hail from Bethlehem. And the only reason we know of Bethlehem is because that's where David was from. David, the one who is so forgettable, his parents didn't even invite him to the dinner table when the prophets came, when the prophet came to choose a new king. David's a shepherd. He's not a politician. He's not a military officer. He's not a wealthy landowner. He has no elite education. You get what a sense of where we're headed here? That this king is totally unexpected. This is not what we would expect. It's not what we would pick. It's not how we would do things. And yet in the Gospels, we see that when Jesus is born, 
There's no fanfare. His birth is not announced to princes or kings. His birth is announced to shepherds in a field. The Messiah is born in a borrowed stable, not a palace. A stable that smelled like feces and urine. He wasn't born to parents of educated or noble stock. He was born to a carpenter and an unwed mother. So as we're looking at this, what is this pointing to about this unexpected king? What does this mean for us? You realize that Mary and Joseph were so poor that when they circumcised Jesus and they brought him for that, that ceremony, all they could afford to bring for the offering was two turtle doves. A turtle dove was the most common bird, like a young pigeon in Israel. They were so common that little kids could just turn around and grab them while they were playing. This is like so poor that Mary and Joseph are essentially grabbing loose change from their couch to bring to the most important sacrifice and offering of their kids' lives. So what does this mean, this unexpected king? Well, what it means for us is that this is a new kind of authority and that his authority is trustworthy and good. It doesn't come with pomp and circumstance. He uses his authority not for selfish means or to exploit or just to keep us in line, but he uses his authority and his leadership to bless and to make whole and to bring shalom. In verse 4, it says, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great, and he shall be their peace. So Micah's pointing to the shepherding type leadership that we get of Jesus in John 10, where he says, I am the good shepherd. I'm the owner of the sheep. I am not like the hired hand. And he's pointing to the old kings of Israel, the old leaders. I'm not like the hired hand. When the wolf shows up, he cuts and runs. I lay down my life for the sheep. So what this is pointing to is that the king is good. He uses his authority, not for selfish gain, but for our own good. Secondly, what it tells us is this unexpected king, when he comes this way, there's this inversion. There's this upside down logic of God. We see the paradox of the kingdom. We see that this is how the first fruits of his kingdom will spread, that it's better to give than to receive, that if anyone wants to hold on to their life, they lose it, that the foolish shame the wise, that the weak shame the strong, the one who loses his life gains it, and the way to bring new life into the world is to lay down our life for other people. This is what Jesus is pointing to. This is what the unexpected king brings with him when he brings peace. And so what this tells us is that when the unexpected king comes, he comes right into the messiness, right into the brokenness, right into the places of poverty and oppression and weakness. And that's where he rolls up his sleeves and says, real comprehensive transformation can only start here. This is how we begin to put the pieces of the puzzle back to get together again. And what it tells us is that peace is not about the reordering of our circumstances. If peace was about the right circumstances, then Jesus wouldn't have been born where he was born or how he was born. But peace is about a person, a person who enters in with their presence. I'm sure that if you're a parent, you understand how this works. When your kids are misbehaving, when they are upstairs going crazy, 
They're running around. They're yelling. They're roughhousing. Do you know what never works as a parent? You're downstairs to just holler up and say, kids, knock it off. Stop the running. Clean it all up. Stop jumping on the bed. Do you know what never happens? Uh, th that is what never happens. They actually never do that. But something does happen when I do this. That's it. I'm coming up there. Because when I go up there, suddenly things begin to happen. They get off the bed. They clean up the mess. They stop yelling. Because my presence carries a weight and an authority that they say, this is somebody who can come and he matters and he's, his presence will help. Well, this is what God is telling us at Christmas is that the presence of God is entering into the world through the most unexpected ways. He's doing the most unexpected things and he's bringing with him the kind of peace that only his presence can bring. Only his presence can bring peace. Not better experiences, not better circumstances, not some new philosophy. It's the presence of the king. Lastly, this is the king the world will never forget. How is it that his reign and rule will never be forgotten? I mean, this was 2,000 years ago, right? And Jesus only lived for 33 years. And when he died, he really only had about 120 followers, people who were gathered together in the upper room with the Pharisees and the Jewish authorities. Well, they were surrounding them. They wanted to root them out. The religious leaders of the day, the, he, the, uh, the Jews and, and the Pharisees, they were ready to snuff out this nonsense and to put it all to bed. And so you could imagine that, that here's G, the uh, followers of Jesus in the upper room feeling hemmed in and surrounded and uh, wondering if there was any hope. But look at what Micah says in verse 3. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Who are those brothers that we're talking about here in Micah 3, uh, 5, 3? Well, Bruce Waltke, he's probably one of the most prominent uh, scholars on the book of Micah. And what he says is that these brothers in this passage are actually the transformed followers of the king. It's God's people. In other words, what Micah envisions in verse 3 is that when the Messiah comes, there would be this new community of believers. And for those followers, that Jesus would have transformed them. Not that he would just give them peace, but that he would become their peace. That he would give us wholeness and his completeness. So look at how this happens in Colossians chapter 1. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. So when we have Jesus, we have a person of ancient origin, and we have someone who is of David's lineage, God and man. And we have a whole man. We have the fullness, the complete picture of shalom in a man. God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace 
through his blood shed on the cross. And now Ephesians chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, listen, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In other words, in the garden, because of our sin, the picture of wholeness, you know, here's a picture. And when they made this puzzle, they broke it into a thousand pieces. And if we were to scatter it all over the room, we'd have some small picture of a perfect picture of peace in the garden being broken apart and thrown all over the world. And so we lost that. And when we lost that, we lost our king. And what these passages show us is that there was a dividing wall of hostility that came between you and I and between our relationship with God. But on the cross, Jesus the king gives up his life. He sheds his blood. He offers up his spirit so that that dividing wall of hostility could be brought down. That our sin and our shame and our guilt could be atoned for in the person and the fullness of Jesus. And what Jesus does when we receive him is he gives us his shalom. That's what gives us peace. It's the person of Jesus. And so we look at verses 4 and 6. In Micah chapter 5, it says, And he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. He shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes, and they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword. Now, what those passages, five and six, represent is the eventual ending of all this hostility. It's the reweaving of everything that's been unraveled. What about that number seven and eight and these uh, princes that are going to, what does that mean? Well, the number seven in the Bible is a picture of completeness. There's seven days of creation, and at the end, God rested. It's perfect completeness. But if you have eight, well, you have more than completeness. You have abundance. And so what Jesus is pointing to here is that through these transformed followers of the king who have experienced the peace that God gives us in his person, well, we have all that we need and more to move out into a broken world and to see God do something amazing. That's the mission that God calls us to at Christmas. Wow, what an amazing ruler. That's why we would say, this is our calling, brothers, to experience peace in the deepest places of our chaotic hearts and minds and lives and to take it into the world around us. Because if the king has come, if God himself has come into our presence and taken on flesh, that means that this world matters to him. That when we say at Christmas, peace on earth, goodwill towards men, that that's not just pie in the sky Christianity. That's not just like, oh man, that's a really good spiritual hyperbole, but really it's just about Christmas presents and 
It means that caring for the poor matters. It means that your job and the way you approach your work here on this earth matters. It means that adopting orphans, working for justice, reconciliation, being generous, sharing the gospel in word and deed, that can actually do things in our world that bring peace and healing. Think about the words that we sing at Christmas. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods the world around us, rocks, hills, and plains, they begin to repeat the sounding joy. And so where we go in peace, the Savior goes. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Wherever the pieces of our broken lives and our broken world are spread out, when the, when the king comes, he comes to put it all back together again. And he enlists us in to his tribe. So how can we experience that peace at Christmas? How can that kind of transformation happen in me so that I can be a part of what the king is doing? I would say, and we've already said it, that we experience peace, not through experiences. We, we can think vacation and we can think more money and we can think whatever. It doesn't come through a philosophy and it doesn't come through better circumstances even if your circumstances are terrible right now. And there's a ton of them. Illness, sickness, broken, whatever. But peace doesn't come through that. Ultimate peace comes through the person of Jesus. And so this morning, the way we experience peace is by coming to him once again and saying, God, come to my brokenness. The places where I feel busted up, and strewn out where I feel hemmed in and surrounded by an enemy, where I'm losing hope. Lord Jesus, I come to you. I run to you, and I bring you my brokenness, and I receive your wholeness yet again. Would you give me peace? Let's pray for that as we uh, think of the words in Psalm 139, and I want you to Pray with me as I think about how David envisioned peace. It's amazing. He felt surrounded, but he felt surrounded by God. Here's what he says. You hem me in behind and before. Your hand is upon me. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your right hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for the darkness is as light to you. Father, I love this picture. I love the picture of peace. David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I am no longer hemmed in by my circumstances, by an enemy, by the hostility of my sin. There is no longer the hopelessness and the helplessness of a broken life, but instead, I am hemmed in. 
I am surrounded by the presence and the love of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord God, I pray that that would be our reality as a church, as a community of God's saints, that what would characterize our lives and the way we move out into the world is this freedom by being hemmed in by the King, the King of Kings. Thank you that when you come into our world, you restore brokenness. God, thank you that you bring your completeness, your wholeness, your shalom, and you restore it in our hearts. We pray that you would be doing that this morning and throughout this Christmas season. We pray in Christ's name, amen.